Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. What will you be known for? This message takes a look at how the early church was known for their faithful devotion to Jesus through making disciples and taking care of one another's needs. This message will challenge you to be known for those same things. Enjoy the message. The whole idea of the first 11 chapters of Acts is to refresh us, to refresh us to the simplicity of what the church is all about, uh, and to really harken back to the simplicity that we see laid out in the book of Acts. Because it's so easy to be a church or do things in the church that we forget why we need to be a church in the first place or what our mission is all about. And what is our mission? Our mission is what Jesus has laid out for us. It's to make what? Disciples or followers of Jesus uh, through the hearing of the good news and growing in him, through the power of the Holy Spirit to do ministry, to be refreshed. And I hope this morning, as we've gone through the book of Acts, you are at least a hint bit more refreshed. A couple years back, I was in England. I was in a town called Taunton, England, and I was there to do some missions work and, and help encourage some believers who were starting a church. Um, and so what I would do each and every day is I'd get up and I would just walk the streets and have a conversation with British people. It was awesome. Uh, and because of my accent, we don't have an accent, they have an accent, right? But, uh, but because of my accent, people, I could just say, I love toast and I love to butter it. They'd be like, that's brilliant, okay? Just as if a British person said that, we're like, that's brilliant, you know? And so uh, you use that really as a tool to just talk about Jesus. And that's what I would do is I would talk about Jesus every day uh, uh, on the streets when I was there in Taunton. One of the things I would do each morning as I would leave from the place I was sleeping is I would walk through, I'd take a, a shortcut to get to the city center, and I would walk through a cemetery. And as I was walking through the cemetery, something caught my eye that was, I thought, quite peculiar. Uh, I saw these two uh, stones, these, these memorial stones uh, uh, in the cemetery, uh, headstones, uh, where they had been so aged, they were, they were very old, that you could not see any, the, you couldn't see any inscriptions, and you could not see even the names that were on them. In fact, one of the tombstones was broken in two. And so God, it got me thinking, who is here who has once been honored? Who lied here? What, what, what did they do in their life? And I began to look at the, the condition of the headstone, and I realized that somebody did honor this person when they died. Somebody did honor them at one point. But these stones are so old that whoever honored them, they have most likely died themselves. And so not only has the person been forgotten, but whatever they were eulogized for has been forgotten as well. It made me think that when someone says that, you know, your life, what you do in your life goes beyond your living, that's true. But there's a point unless that you do something of eternal significance, that very well may be forgotten as well. I mean, just think of your family trees. How many years can you actually go back unless that's a hobby? And so I thought in that moment, in that cemetery, that the only way that your life is going to go beyond your lifetime or even your tombstone is if you do something of spiritual significance. And so this morning, I want us to talk about our life, our legacy that will outlast your life and maybe even outlast your tombstone what will you be known for what will you be known for we want to reach the unchurched the de-churched the anti-church that we just moved into the town looking for a church people and the question is are we willing to do what it takes without compromising biblical conviction to reach those individuals are we willing to do what it takes 
It's easy to recite platitudes or shake our head yes and saying, yes, we will do what it takes. But doing the hard work, doing what it takes, are we willing to do that? Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at a church in Antioch. We're going to take a look at their legacy and what was happening in that church. So I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 11 this morning. Verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen uh, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and and Antioch speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So we see here in verse 19 that there's been a scattering. In fact, I've highlighted that. There's been a scattering from their homeland, from their homes, because of a great persecution that broke out, the persecution of Stephen. He was the first Christian martyr. He, uh, he, he preached the gospel of Jesus, and he was killed for it. And shockwaves were sent through the Jerusalem church when that happened. People began to flee the impending persecution that was taking place at the hands of a guy named Saul, who later placed his faith and trust in Jesus and became Paul. But the scattering took place. Now think about this. Their faith in Jesus was so real. Their experience in the power of the Holy Spirit was so real, they were willing to leave their homes, everything that they were known for, and go into a foreign land because their relationship with Jesus was more important than anything else. This isn't radical faith. This is what we read in the book of Acts and throughout Scripture, a normal biblical faith. What the enemy meant for harm for the church, actually because of the scattering, God turned out for what? The good. Because we see here that they did not wobble in the faith, that wherever they went, the faith of Jesus went with them. Their belongings may have been behind, but they took the faith of Jesus with them, with them to wherever they went. It really underlines when we say that we'll give it all for Christ, that's what that looks like. And as the gospel spread, it spread even into the non-Jewish world, what the Bible calls the Gentile world, And people started telling others about the good news of Jesus. We see this in verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which is in modern-day Libya, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Uh, We see here that God has made you uh, to spread this message. If you have placed your faith and trust in Christ alone as basis for your salvation, you have a message to share. The God of this universe, the one who made you, the one who knew you from eternity past, wants to make all things new in your life, and people that are in your life need to see that. Through the God-man Jesus, he's able to forgive us from our sins, saving you from the wrath of God's justice, but rather delivering him into his favor that lasts forever. That's a pretty good transaction. Followers from Christ from Cyprus and Cyrene founded the first non-Jewish church in Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the empire uh, behind Rome and Alexandria, and it was known for its education, so they were educated, but they were also very pagan and known for their sexual sin. Yet these followers of Christ were not bogged down by taking a look at uh, Antioch and saying, oh, the people could never place their faith in, in Christ here. They did not let the, con- the, the, the background of what uh, Antioch was known for or what people were currently doing deter them from sharing the good news and realizing that the gospel of Jesus does not return void. They had a vision for Antioch that it could be transformed through the power of Jesus Christ. And so what do they do? By conviction, we see here in verse 20, they preached the Lord Jesus. They preached the Lord Jesus. That's what they did. And the title Lord, it's 
translated Yahweh in the Greek translations of the Old Testament. Uh, that is the testament before the coming of Christ. And when people called Jesus Lord, it was not just a mark of respect. Uh, you, you'll, you'll see it sometimes in royal families. They say, my Lord. It's a, it's a mark of, uh, of respect of maybe someone of higher rank. It's not just that, but it is one that's saying Jesus has a divine identity. He is God. So people were preaching that Jesus was God. The term the Lord also speaks forth that Jesus is sovereignly in control and he also has absolute authority in our life, whether we choose to believe that reality or not. He's in control. He has authority over our life. Psalm 97.1 states, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Jesus is king. He's just not king over Israel. He's king over this entire universe. And we have the responsibility to live in obedience to his kingship. Jesus is Lord means he is also has the divine authority over every aspect of our life. God made us, therefore he owns us. That is probably a very controversial statement today, especially in our individualistic society, that we say that nobody owns me or can say I, can, I have to do or will do anything. And we can choose to obey or disobey God, but that doesn't take away the reality that we are his, whether we know it or not. He has a right to tell us how we ought to live and what we should do. And listen, he just doesn't have control over us or wants us to submit to his control, but he has control over inanimate objects such as storms. Uh, he can make storms cease. He can calm the waves. He can, <laughs> he can take the dead and make them rise. He can heal the sick. But in fact, the scripture says, all things hold together by his words, and they consist through him. Isaiah 45, 9 says, what sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does a clay dispute with the one who shapes it saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? Church, we need to know that God is in absolute control. We need to remember this and act in faith. We do not need to proceed in crippling fear. When we do this, uh, how can we move in obedience? How can we be a church that we, that's marked out in the book of Acts? So church, what will we be known for? What will you be known for individually when you leave this earth? What will we be known for collectively as God's church? If we know Jesus is Lord, that is, he is God and he is in control, uh, we, should, we'll, we should be and will be characterized by outsiders as maybe somebody who is outrageous in their faith. Uh, one who does not turn back, they're all in. These may be derogatory terms to the outsider, but the insider, they should be a badge of honor. It should be a badge of honor that, yes, we are indeed all in because we realize who is in control. When you're obedient in doing what God has asked you to do, his hand will be over you, meaning that is the power of God will work through you to do what he is wanting to accomplish through you. For many people, though, they equate church growth as something that is negative or something that is uh, compromising. You've heard this before, right? Oh, man, that church is just so big, they must be pretty shallow. I just want to say this this morning, that how many people may be in a room in a church or just even the number of people at a gathering, uh, that's a neutral thing. It could be good or it could be bad. Let's take some secular things, for instance. If there is a crummy movie that comes out, a sequel of a movie where the first one was even bad, right? I mean, 
Jaws may have been a good movie, but when they started making Jaws 19, you had to wonder what's going on here. Yet, however, however crummy of a movie is, and they just want to make an extra buck, they know that on opening night, the theater will be full. So numbers is a neutral thing. It doesn't really paint the picture of uh, the entire picture of what's going on. However, if a church is preaching the gospel, the church should and will be growing, period. We see this in Acts. After persecution hits, after the gospel is preached, the church grows and sometimes grows so rapidly they don't know what to do because there are more people that place their faith in Christ than there were that begin with. Can you imagine? If thousands of people crowded in this room because they responded to the gospel call, church would look different next week. We'd struggle with that, wouldn't we? Because we'd realize we're absolutely outnumbered in the way that we did church compared to the people that are in the church right now. That was the reality of Acts constantly. It's a biblical reality to function in inviting people to the faith that you know if you're a follower of Christ. It is a understanding of yesterday, of a time past, where people would just show up to church haphazardly. People still do it, but it's not the norm. Usually when somebody shows up at church, it's because of a personal invite. Someone, someone inviting a family, friend, or even a stranger. And we need to have that urgency. We're committed to having those invite cards on your seats to make it easy for you to invite. To invite the biggest demograph, the unchurched, or those who attend a church that, uh, that do not preach the gospel. You see, the American church has a problem, has a real big problem, of the church is growing by inviting people that come from a gospel-advancing church. And what happens is, is when churches start to grow, and I've been part of these churches before, when we grow with people that come from other gospel-advancing churches in that same city, we get deluded a little bit into thinking that we're making influence in this city. But if you look at Barner Research or any research that in Christianity Day or, or some of the brightest minds that do stats, they show that the church, the evangelical church specifically, is increasingly losing ground of influence. Why? Because I believe that many of us have given up on being gospel advancing to those who are unchurched. And we must reach the unchurched if there's going to be a future of the church in America. So this morning I want to look at five ingredients of the Antioch church. Five ingredients that helped them leave a legacy. Five ingredients that this morning I believe will help even enrich our church experience and even your individual Christian life experience. So we see in the first ingredient in Acts uh, eleven twenty one that a great number of people were believing in Jesus. We see this, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, the intent of this verse, I believe, largely is showing that people were turning their entire lives to God. But what is being assumed here in this passage is something that's been happening all during the book of Acts. People were placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as basis for their salvation time and time again. And Antioch was known as a place where the message of Jesus was going out and people were responding. I suppose if that we were to go back in a time machine and go back to Antioch, not Antioch, Illinois, right? <laughs> but, but to Antioch, you'd have the expectation of seeing new people each and every week placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In fact, you would be able to hear the anticipation. Who's going to show up next and place their faith in Christ? You know, I remember growing up in a church that had a season like this. I may have shared this before. 
but it's quite significant. There was a season where the church uh, I, I grew up in, it was a church plant from, a, from another faithful church. Um, they, uh, they, they asked the question, how do, how do we reach those that we're not reaching? What are we going to do? And people just began, people began to just invite, invite like crazy. And each week you would literally go to church like, who's going to be here next? And you'd see people, the most unchurched people, people that didn't even know how to, uh, they, they, they wouldn't dress nice in church, or they wouldn't say the church words, or they didn't even know the Old or New Testament. And it was an amazing, exciting time as people met Jesus for the first time. I remember seeing my neighbors, progressively all my neighbors, uh, starting to attend church at our church, neighbors that had previously rejected the gospel of Christ. One neighbor in particular was a mother who had a, a daughter of uh, five and seven years old started showing up. And I thought, wow, I wonder who invited her. Fast forward 15 years later, she's still attending that church. Her daughters have uh, graduated from university. Uh, they, are, they are very much faithful followers of Christ. In fact, one just got married uh, and has been involved with different ministry things. It's been really cool. But I finally found out how she attended church 15 years ago who invited her. We got a letter in the mail. My mom did. And it was from this mom. And it said, Rhonda, I just want to thank you for inviting me to church 15 years ago. It has been a big impact on my family. And so, again, what I thought just happened haphazardly was not haphazard. And we need to understand that the gospel does not go out haphazardly. It can, but that is not a sustainable movement. I hope we can expect to have the joy that we cannot even handle. Because when we see people place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ on a weekly basis, when we let the things that define us that are not really of significant spiritual importance go to the wayside, we leave room for the rejoicing and the grace of Jesus Christ in what he does. So church is not supposed to be a solemn place where we are expecting a casket perhaps in the middle of the room because we're just so solemn. You know, church should not be a place where someone walks in and said, who died in here? Rather, church should be a place where you open up and say, who is alive? And we know who alive, who's alive, right? Jesus Christ is alive. That's why we come here. People come to funerals whether they have relationships in Jesus or not. We come to church not to mourn the death of Jesus. We come to church to celebrate that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so it should be a place where we rejoice, a celebration that's marked by spirit-directed and a growing community. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is our strength. And this is the same joy that made David just dance in the middle of the streets. He danced. Whether we have rules against that or not, he danced. And it's okay. Why? Because a great number of people were believing, and for David, he saw the glory of the Lord. And why should we be joyful, thankful? Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And what the message of Jesus has done, that he died on the cross for our sins, he rose from the dead, that's the hope of the world. And Christ's plan to spread this message is through his church, the local expression. There is no plan B. The 501c3 or even parachurch organizations, as helpful as they are, are not God's plan. God's plan is through what he calls his bride, the church. So church, what are we going to be known for? So first ingredient that we see here in Antioch is a great number of believing in Jesus. The second one is lives returning to Jesus. Let's read, uh, read verse 21 again. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, 
And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. That word turned indicates a clear directional change. The normative picture we see in Scripture is when, when one places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, that their life begins to change. You're not perfect. In fact, you might not know some things are wrong in your life that God doesn't desire. But here's the thing. When you place your faith in Jesus, you come, as the old worship song Rock of Ages says, some of you might know where I'm, where I'm going with this. You can sing it with me. Nothing in the hand I bring Simply to the cross, I cling. We bring nothing. But when we come, he begins to do a work we could not ever accomplish. And that is making us alive and making us new. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are made new. We are not a perfect people, but we are a Real people made new. Someone had said, well, why does it say real people? Isn't everybody real? I'm talking about the religious experience that people put in the church. You see, you've, you've maybe experienced church before where people come in and they put on the religious veneer. They're not being real. What I'm saying is we are, our culture here, whether we're here yet or we're not, is we're going to be a real people and we realize we're being made new in Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 2, this is from the New Living Translation. I like how this translation puts it. It says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. But God begins to transform our minds to think and act and be like him when we place our trust in him. In today's society, there's a lot of people saying, I just want to be myself. Just got to be me. Now, I would say that the hint of truth in that would be that we should not be people pleasers, right? We shouldn't just do things to please somebody else as the end result. I would give you that because then you're not being genuine in what you're doing. However... People have taken that, I just want to be me, I want to be myself, and they've made it an idol. They've made it the end goal to where they can do what they want to do, think they want to think, be who they want to be, name themselves however they want to name themselves, do whatever. And that is making yourself a God unto yourself. You see, nowhere in Scripture does it say that you need to be yourself. It says you need to be like God, like Jesus, right? That is who we're to be like. We're to be transformed to think like he thinks. And when you place your faith, your minds are renewed. Your spirit is born again and you're made alive, making you capable of wanting to be like Jesus. John Murray called this a dispositional complex. When you place your faith in Christ, you are spiritual infants with the inclination, despite remaining sin, to pursue and be like God. Followers of Christ is expected for you to grow in Christ just as a child is expected to grow. And growth is not marked by just knowledge alone. That is not growth. For the Pharisees would be the greatest believers in history if that was the case. But it's doing what you know. It's putting into application what God is telling us to do. Obedience. Good works do not save you, but they're the reality of a saved life. We have to make sure we keep that straight. There is there's some sometimes muddy teaching to where almost people feel like that they have to get things right before they can get to Jesus or they have to do this, that, and whatever or they're not truly saved. Listen, grace is free. The gift of Jesus is free. 
And when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, your spirit is activated to where you begin to long for the things of God. We are to grow. And we see here the next thing that is, um, the next thing of legacy for Antioch is they grew in grace. Grace was on display. We see this in verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. You know, grace makes a person glad because it is something that we receive that we don't otherwise deserve. Grace is the undeserved favor that God showers on us through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That even though that we've messed up, we've sinned, God showed favor by sending Jesus to die for us. And we don't earn this relationship. Jesus Christ came to do it even while we were yet sinners. He gives gives us everything even though we bring nothing to the table. And faith and trust is the instrument by which we receive this gift of grace. And what we see in our text this morning is grace kept on growing. It was on display in the church of Antioch. You know, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. That is grace. And we have a choice in this life to reciprocate the grace with others. It's so easy to get on the high horse knowing if you know the truth of God, using it as a thing to where you make yourself feel better because you know it. But that is not the spirit of grace. That's a spirit of legalism or pride. If you want to know the grace, start living in grace towards others. That means you have a choice to make. To spend, to spread uh, gossip or negativity or anger or let the love of God shine through you no matter what. It means practically speaking in everyday life to quit treating people in a transactional manner. God didn't do that for us. If we did, we'd all have no hope this morning. But to love people even when they do not love you back. You know how many marriages would have revival in this room right now if we quit treating our marriages in a transactional manner? You know how many friendships would be renewed? You know how many churches would be renewed if grace was put on display? But listen, if they can't see our love, they're never going to see the truth. And this needs to be, listen, church needs to be the most hospitable moment of our week especially for the guest, where maybe this is the first time they've been in church ever, or they're giving it another shot, and after this, it's done. And we've had that before. We've had where it's like, I'm just giving it one more shot. And some of them are still with us to this very day. But listen, the gospel, turning to God, even being a place of grace, will not happen in our church if we do not hold tightly to purpose. And that's the fourth ingredient this morning. The church in Antioch, and subsequently our church, we must hold tightly to the purpose of why we're a church to begin with. The church was so intent on God's purpose, the growth of this church reached Jerusalem, that the Jerusalem church heard how Antioch was growing, that they sent up Barnabas, and he was encouraged by what he was seeing so much that he even brought up Paul, the former persecutor. The reason why we even have Antioch is because of Paul. It's his fault. But what, God, or what the enemy meant for harm, God turned out for good, right? The irony in this. Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and then he found him, and he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. 
we see in the text that Barnabas was a man full of the spirit and full of truth. And this is so huge because in, in the infancy of a church or when a church is in transition or when a church is growing, it is so important that people that are, that are either uh, of license or legalism do not come in and teach. The licensed people say, hey, it doesn't matter how you live, whatever. The legalist people, they put rigid rules on people, sucking the very life and joy out of believers. And listen, legalistic places do not grow, they die. And Paul warns us very much about legalism in the book of Galatians. So if you want to study legalism, read the book of Galatians. And so God sent a man that was full of spirit, full of faith. And here's the thing. They came in to hold tight to the purposes of the church. Our purpose is to glorify God by making followers locally and internationally. How we contextualize that in Kenosha and around the world. And we notice in the second portion of verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, what's, what's ironic about this is I'm like, oh, wow, this is where they're first called Christians. That's great. Think of the context of this. That was a bad word. That was a derogatory word. That was a word that you call people that in, in the secular mindset or in the Jewish mindset, they have lost their mind. They are little Christs. They're from the band of Christ which means you don't want to be called that if you're going to have a social life. They're called Christians. But listen, that term that was a derogatory term became a badge of honor. In fact, we're told later on in 1 Peter that we, we are to continue the work of a Christian. It is a term that we, are, that we hold tightly today. But might I say this? The term Christian has become so enduring to us that we've probably watered it down. So today, it's not that if someone says they're a Christian, we need to go a little deeper. Have you been born again? Are you living a life that is faithful in the everyday life of, of, of Christ in your life? The sixth ingredient for a legacy that we find after you hold on to purpose is when you're such a purpose people, you become outrageous in your generosity. Outrageous generosity. Verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem and Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up through the spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Um, this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. We see Agabus prophesied that there be a severe famine. This is what I love about this. When you're so on to the purpose of God, you become hungry to hear God. Here are these people that came in, and, and what I know of prophets in, in, the, in the scriptures, sometimes they're not the most sociable people. Uh, they, they come in, and uh, just read some of the prophets, and you're like, wow, that, that's crazy. But they come in, and they say, there's going to be a famine. They pray about it, they seek the Lord about it, and they realize, we need to be generous, about what God, generous to the people that are going to be affected by this. Church, we need to understand this. We need to be so hungry to hear from God. That's why we need to be in God's word. That's why we need to be with God's people. That's why we need to be sensitive to his Holy Spirit. That we need to be so hungry to be led by God. And when we're hungry for his purpose, when we're hungry to hear from God, we are going to be outrageous in our generosity because we're going to want to give in to what God is doing. Jesus was outrageously generous to us, wasn't he? He gave what we did not deserve. If it was a, if it was, again, if it was a transactional relationship, we'd be, all be doomed. But thanks to God and his love and mercy, he gave us the riches of his grace for nothing. Oftentimes we're not generous because we forget who owns our stuff. 
Or we think of, what if I lose this stuff? Does God own 1% of our stuff? Does he own 10% of our stuff? Or does he own 100% of our stuff? God owns it all. He owns all our stuff. So who are we, the pot, to say to the, to the, to the potter, I'm only going to give you, God, this. Or I'm only going to do this if this happens. It becomes quite absurd, doesn't it? How much are we to give away? Well, the New Testament says the abundance of our heart. Now, if you're a guest with us this morning, I want you to know that we don't expect you to give anything to us because we're so happy we have you this morning. But if you've committed to this church, to this local church, uh, and we don't have time to go into this too much in detail this morning, but we see in Scripture what's called the tithe. Uh, Jesus reaffirmed the tithe in Matthew 23. Uh, he affirms the Old Testament practice of it. Tithe really means 10%. Giving 10% of what you have. Malachi says this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And really in the New Testament understanding is the house is your local expression of the church, the hope of the world. And you know, the thing is, is we, God did not die for his 501c3. He did not die for a parachurch organization or, or, or those things. But listen, those are important things. The causes that help out uh, suffering in this world, those are important things. But there's only one hope of the world that he has set up, and it's his local church. I hear someone say, well, Andy, I, I can't give 10%. Or, uh, listen, the Bible says it's really the heart behind that's giving, because you might give 10% and your heart's bad about it. You don't give something because you want a certain style of music or a program or whatever your liking is. You give simply because you want to see the gospel go out and you're giving into the bride of Christ. Outrageous generosity does not have strings attached as long as it honors the mission. And listen, some people's like, I just can't give anything to the church. I'm going to be honest with you right now. If that's you, you can't give to the church. We need to give to you. We need to give to you. And we're honest about that. Take us up on that. Tell us your situation. Outrageous generosity goes both ways, doesn't it? So we have these five ingredients in Antioch, but there's something that's being presupposed. It's prayer. It's communing with God. Some of the sweetest moments in the book of Acts was right when they got together and they prayed. What will you be known for? What will we be known for? It's an important question as we proceed, as we, as we talk about reaching 1% or even 10% of this area. What will we be known for? Do we, are we willing to do what it takes to do what God is calling us? Are we willing to do what it takes to hold fast in the mission of God? We must be abiding in that vine. We must pray to God and have it say, God, give us a spirit even when I don't want to do what you're calling us to do. You know, there's moments where we just don't want to do what God wants us to do. Let's be real about that. There's moments that we just don't want to be obedient. We don't want to be in God's word. We don't want to pray. And one of the most powerful prayers that you can pray is, God, help me be obedient even right now when I don't want to. What a powerful prayer, and I dare you to pray it. So this morning, as we land, I want to talk about two things I want to pray about. First off, I want to talk to anybody in this room today, if you don't know 100%, if you're going to heaven, if you don't know 100%, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, not just know about Jesus, not just because you've gone to church, not because you've just done good things, but have you personally accepted Jesus Christ? Have you personally placed your trust in Jesus Christ as a foundation of your salvation? Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins. He rose from the dead. Are, is, that your, is that your assurance? Is there assurance in Jesus Christ and what he did alone? Or are you basing it on something else? If you're basing it on something else, 
You need to get right with God this morning. Secondly, I want us to all, every single one of us, no matter where we're at, I want us to wrestle with that question, what are you going to be known for? Spiritually, what are you going to be known for? There's so many things that you're known for maybe right now. There's so many things that are filling your schedules. There's so many things that are, that are just, uh, just creating less and less margin in your life. And I got to ask you just a real question. Are those things that you want to be known for when you're in the ground or when I'm in the ground? Do you want that epitaph to be on your tombstone? And when your tombstone is gone and the only thing that could be left is a spiritual legacy, will there be that spiritual legacy? Think about that. That's a question that we all have to ask ourselves. So let's go before God. In a spirit of just humbleness, in a spirit of openness, let's go before God and say, God, you have our hearts right now. So, Father, I pray that we would do business with you, that we would be real with you, that we would really ask this question, what would we be known for? God, I just I pray right now for anybody who may have been drifting from you. Maybe they feel like I don't know you or I've never been close to God. I don't know if I've really known God personally. Maybe you're saying this morning, I've actually grown up going to church, yet in church I didn't know God personally. God, maybe there's people here that were confirmed, they were baptized, they did all the rituals, they had head understanding of who God was, but they didn't have a heart relationship with him. Quite honestly, would some of you say that this morning? So Father, I pray, if there's anybody here today where they are just ritualistically have a relationship with you, but they've never personally placed their trust and faith in you, they don't have this personal relationship with you this morning, God, I pray that you would become their savior. That they would become, that they would, they, they, that you would be their savior. So, Father, I pray, uh, is for anybody in this room now, that if Jesus were to return and He says, "Why should I let you in my kingdom?" and you don't know the answer to that question, that this morning you would come to Jesus so you know that question. So, Father, I pray, if there's anybody in this room now that needs a place of trust and faith in you, they would cry out to you, just as Romans chapter ten says that they would cry out to you in the name of the Lord, that they would say, Lord Jesus, I've done wrong, I've sinned, and there's nothing I can do to get your forgiveness. There's nothing I can do to get your favor. So that's why I need you to help. That's why I need you to save me. That's why I need Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross, for saving me from my sins. Thank you that you rose from the dead. And now, Lord, help me follow you. Help me. If that's your heart cry this morning, you're doing business with God. You made certain you had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And today you can have full assurance that you're going to heaven, that you have a relationship that starts now. So, Father, I pray for everybody in this room now. I pray, God, that we would faithfully answer this question. What will we be known for? What will we be known for? People see Jesus in us. What do they see? Where are there areas in our life that you are not Lord and master of our life? Lord, is there any unconfessed sin? Is there fear in our life? Maybe it's fear of finances. Maybe it's fear of death. Maybe it's fear of, of loved ones. God, maybe it's our marriages. Maybe it's addictions. Lord, I pray that the individuals in this room would name it. So in, in, a, in a spirit of prayer, just take some moments now and just name it. Name that thing. That can prevent you from being known for what you should be known for. Name that thing right now. Just name it. Father, I pray that whatever is being named here, that there, there be enough trust in the hearts this morning to know that you are able to grow us 
you're able to cut the chains of addiction or cut the chains of fear. God, that you're able and capable of giving us to make the right decisions to do the right thing so that we can be known by the thing that you want us to be known for. That is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ that told the world about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a church, it is our honor to be a small part in all that God is doing in and through your life. And we would love to continue with you on that journey. If you became a Christian today, your next step is baptism. Baptism is when you go public with your faith in Jesus as a symbol of going from an old life into a new one. If you would like to find out more about baptism, all you have to do is go to kenosha.church events. Beyond that, if you want to know more about your next steps as a new Christian, all you have to do is go to kenosha.church slash next steps.